to the Weird Warriors podcast. On this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this episode, we'll be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 27. But first, Rich has an intel report to bring you up to speed on. The Royals, Masters of War a six-issue mini published by DC Vertigo in 2014, script by Rob Williams, art by Simon Colby. The year is 1940. As the Blitz destroys London and kills thousands, the royal family looks on. But in this world, the only people with powers are royalty, and the purer the bloodline, the greater their abilities. So why don't they stop the carnage with their powers? A truce between the Earth's nobles kept them out of our wars. Until now, when England's Prince Henry can take no more and intervenes, will it stop the planet's suffering or take it to another level? Gee, I wonder, will the royals make things better? Yeah, I've never heard of that one. That's the first I'm hearing of it right now. That sounds pretty cool. Uh, oh, yeah. Was it? If, 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 if you want a hint, um, Emperor Hirohito. Yeah, things don't go very well in the Pacific. <laughs> Oh, man, that, that does sound cool. I'm going to have to swipe that off here at some point. So uh, before we get to either that miniseries or the issue we're talking about right now, we're going to take a small podcast promo break to let you guys in on another cool show out there. And when we come back, we'll be looking at Weird War Tales number 27. Greetings, guys and ghouls. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and this is The Monsters That Made Us. Join Monster Mike Manzi and I on the last Friday of every month as we celebrate all of the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios classic monster series. From the Phantom of the Opera to the Creature Walks Among Us, we sink our teeth into all the gory details as we dissect the films that gave us some of the most iconic movie monsters of all time. The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more information, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. we are back so looking at weird war tales number 27 this time around as i've been saying and rich is here to hit y'all with the cover detail luis dominguez does the art but you probably already do that a 20 cent mystery and madness wwt under an orange sky two american sailors in a lifeboat are horrified by an abruptly surfacing u-boat directly in front of them the U-boat's skeletal commander leans over the sub's conning tower and leers at them. Cover date, July 1974, date of release, April 23rd, 1974, Killjoy. I think I said something about this in our very first episode about U-boats not having huge swastikas painted on the conning tower. If I didn't, I should have. We were still playing with format back then. Fine, bad guy ID, I Get it. I have the same bitch in the issue's first story, too. Also, the machine gun wouldn't be left out like that. The crew would bring it up from below decks and mount it if they were going to be on the surface for a while. Unless this whole cover is a representation of a sub that got sunk while on the surface, in which case I'll do a 180 and appreciate the attention to detail. See, it could be a sub coming back from the dead. You, you gotta cover your bases here in the weird war, you know? So, Comments and commendations on this cover. 
as is becoming a broken record with me lately, but I'm not unhappy about it. We got another full bleed, silent cover that utterly works for me. It, it's it, it really does the job. And once more, color is used very effectively. I'll specifically point out that the ocean blue of the upper weird part of the logo and the bodies packed within that part of the logo acts as a nice balancing element with the actual blue ocean at the bottom of the image. So that works, and the composition is great too. The angular position of the sun and the submarine's tower line up perfectly with the body language and the glare of the skeletal submariner, drawing the eye directly down and across the image to the sailors who are recoiling from the impact of that gaze. It's masterclass stuff. It's everything they show you when trying to design a comic book image, especially a cover. Agreed. The blue of the title works well with the ocean water on the cover. You, know, you look at the that the bodies in the weird, and you almost think, man, did all those people drown? That's kind of a neat tie-in, actually. The waves flying away from the conning tower excellently represents how fast the sub surfaced to investigate the lifeboat. A rare naval cover for the series, only the second one overall, and the first out of reprint. Indeed. So with that, really cool cover out of the way because of what's going to happen in the synopsis here. Rich is going to tell you about the first story in the issue. Survival of the fittest. Nine pages. Script by Jack Olick. Art by Frank Robbins. The captain's trade was killing and he was a master of his trade. A man without conscience who lived by one simple law. So it was only just that the same law should be his punishment, as well as his creed. December 7th, 1941. Word of the attack on Pearl Harbor reaches the liner SS Althea, crossing the Atlantic on her way back to the U.S. An officer suggests to Captain Lee Howard that they should alter course. U-boats had been reported in the area. The captain demurs. They weren't at war with Germany. Yet. Besides, the Althea was a clearly an unarmed passenger vessel. Not even a rabid Nazi would attack them. Maintain bearing and speed. But a periscope is watching the liner close by. Captain Karl Lubisch is notified. He's only too happy to break off the interrogation of rescued British sailors from a tanker they'd sunk earlier to be the first to taste American blood. One of Lubisch's officers, a lieutenant, protests. Surely there are women and children aboard. But Lubisch was a rabid Nazi and calls the officer weak. All enemies need to be killed. And so, minutes later, the U-235 fires two torpedoes into the Althea's starboard side. The liner is doomed. He orders the sub to surface so he can take some photos for his scrapbook before she sinks. He soon incensed to see the British POWs on deck. They had been confined below for days and the lieutenant had brought them up for some fresh air. Lubish erupts and calls the officer soft. To teach him a lesson, Lubish orders his gun crew to blow the lifeboat out of the water over the lieutenant's protest. The British POWs instantly charge their captors. Murderer! Those were women and kids! We'll kill you for that! The closest two German crewmen are overwhelmed before a machine gun mounted on the conning tower mowed the Englishmen down, their bodies falling into the sea. But their sacrifice had not been in vain. While the crew of the U-235 were distracted by their assault, the burning Althea was still underway and bearing down on them. The liner collided with the sub and rode over her hull. 
When the liner's boilers exploded, she took the U-boat with her. Lubish was thrown clear, the lone survivor from both vessels. He clung to floating wreckage for a day until he was rescued by a ship. He exulted in his good fortune until he saw the ship's name, SS Althea. It was impossible, but true. If she sank, he'd go down with her. He demanded to see the captain. Howard obviously found the tale hard to swallow. Lubish begged Howard to believe him. My U-boat sank you once before. Howard's after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. When did all this take place, Captain? Howard asked. Yesterday, December 7th. Captain, this is only December 6th. Shocked, Lubish throws himself at Howard. Fool, don't you see? Somehow I've gone back in time. But this time, if you're sunk, I die with you. You've got to change course. Howard's crew pulls Lubish off the captain, who orders the German locked in the brig with some food and a change of clothing until he comes to his senses. Lubish screams from his cell as the crew walk off. Resigned to his fate, he watches the seconds tick off his watch. Right on time, the Althea is struck by two torpedoes right where Lubish was being kept. As he dies, the explosions blow the German forward in time to the moment where the doomed liner rams the submarine, knocking him into the sea. He has no memory of having previously been aboard the ship when he is rescued. And so the story began again, and again, and again. He would die every day, and his agony would be fresh. For a man like the captain, the punishment was fitting. Killjoy, History Minute. The only historic ship named Althea I could find was a Civil War steamer that struck a mine and sank during the Battle of Mobile Bay. Oleg called it the USS Althea in the script, but an American passenger liner should be SS, not USS. Robbins actually portrays it correctly throughout. We have the double Japanese meatball on the fuselage to tail the attacking aircraft at Pearl Harbor on page two, panel one. And did Lubish really hang on to his monocle while adrift after the sub was sunk? Page seven, panel six. For comedic shock value, he should have dropped it when he discovered it was only December 6th. And for the big old plot hole, when Captain Howard finds out about Pearl Harbor a day after Lubish warns him about it, you bet your ass he should have dragged Lubish out of the brig, grilled the hell out of him, and changed course. But then we have no story. <laughs> Historically, this is all on Howard. Germany often practiced unrestricted submarine warfare during both world wars. If they saw it, they sank it. It didn't matter what flag the ship flew, which drew a few countries into the war on the side of the Allies, like Mexico and Brazil. The Athea should have been in convoy, or at least zigzagging. The SS Athenia was a liner that got torpedoed and sunk three days after the war started in 1939, killing 117 of the over 1,400 aboard. Famously, the RMS Lusitania was torpedoed and sunk during World War I, killing almost 1,200 of the 1,960 aboard. The German embassy had actually published warnings in American newspapers about the risks of sailing to England. We can get into the argument of whether or not the Lusitania was secretly transporting weapons and ammo some other time. Lubitsch certainly is the bad guy, but any court of inquiry would look at Howard's actions also. Time for a little C&C, because I know you like the sound of my voice. Groundhog Day, anyone? This story reminds me of Joe Kubert's The End of the Sea Wolf that was reprinted in Weird War Tales number one, which is why I went back and added a boatload of photos to that album months ago. The typical crew-cut, monocle-wearing, baby-murdering Nazi bad guy ensures you have no sympathy for Lubish when his eternal fate is revealed to you. I think I'd have liked it more if he remembered each trip, 
and the knowledge of going through the sinking over and over again would slowly drive him insane. Or he could just be like Bill Murray and be like, meh, after the first couple hundred times. I like Robin's attention to detail on page six, panel one, where the Althea is dragging unlaunched lifeboats in its wake. I really like the splash page too, with the U-boat firing um, the lifeboat as the liner sinks behind it. Great story, even with a temporal loophole that usually pops up in these tales. All right, yeah. First of all, what we have here is a nine-page Frank Robbins feast. So much goodness to behold. But story first. I loved it. Great twist on the well-deserved eternal time loop tale. And as a side note, several years ago, I wrote a comic book script for an eight-page story that was maybe going to go into an anthology uh, for Charlton Neo comics, but still hasn't found a home for various reasons, including people expecting me to find an artist to draw it for free. I'm not doing that. And it also involved a jerk getting trapped in a permanent time loop of doom, which also happened at sea. So since we have Rod around, cue the music. But however, this story did get published, and I'm quite happy that it did. Everything about the script was paced perfectly, right down to the emotional beats. The captain's cruelty, bloodthirst, and disdain for the weak is ramped up to a fever pitch as the story goes on, and we even see that some of his fellow Nazis are disturbed by it. Then, when he's placed in his own harm's way, the Capitan doesn't for one instant apply that philosophy to himself, as most never do. He is among the weak. Does he not then deserve to die? Again, love it. As for the art, well, these are some incredible pages. Robin's mostly borderless panels keep the storytelling clear and interesting across several bold page layouts, allowing the script just to right amount of room for in-panel dialogue and narrative captions as well. I really liked how our skeletal host was obviously an undead version of Herr Capitan, and the effect of the shining monocle that linked the two even more clearly was there for anyone who might have missed it. You see? (laughs) And he's wearing the same outfit, too. So I I loved that. Like, death was taking on the very persona of the person who was going to get it in the story. So you know me and Frank Robbins. I thought every panel was great. So I'll call out my favorite page. Page nine, grand finale. Such a chaotic design, but so masterfully wrangled by Robbins and skillfully scripted by Oleg. It's a montage to beat the band, jumping back and forth to the point of mingling scenes of in-panel action with host-driven narration. Just stunning work. Me likey. We're off to a good start. So I guess uh, we'll see about that good start as we move on to the second story in the issue. And I'll take the reins for this one. This is called The General. It is seven pages long. Script, again, by Jack Olek. Art, by our good buddy Alfredo Alcala. Synopsis goes a little something like this. The year is 2165. Little remains of mankind's accomplishments. The weapons and clothing man uses now would fit in perfectly a thousand years in the past. The warlord has looted and burned other cities, but the one that stands before him now is led by a general that has repelled every attempt to conquer it. The warlord believes the general is a myth and orders his army to attack in the morning over the protest of his aides. Advancing through a canyon, the warlord is mocking his wary aides as they walk into an ambush. Rocks, spears, and arrows rain down on them from the heights. The warlord has no choice but to retreat, and he loudly curses the general as he does. 
That night, the warlord's men try to convince him to leave and attack other cities, but he angrily refuses. The general doesn't exist, but even if he does, he's only a man, and men can be killed. We attack again tomorrow by another route, and any officer who mentions the general again will answer to me. The next morning, the warlord's army is moving through a field when the city dwellers pop out of the tall grass on three sides and shower them with spears and arrows. It was a disaster, and again, the warlord must fall back. Three weeks pass, and attack after attack is thrown back by the general. Every move the warlord makes is matched, and the commander's hatred of his foe is a white-hot flame. A quarter of his men have been killed. The warlord decides the next attack is all or nothing. There will be no retreat this time. The almost predicted ambush happens, but the commander takes a group of men and slips away from the fighting to search for the general's lair. The general's guards are quickly killed, and the commander discovers a door with a beam of light shining from under it. Breaking down the door, he is stunned to find not a man, but a machine inside. The general wasn't there. Half of his men had been killed for nothing. He savagely swings his sword at the machine again and again until there's an explosion. The warlord is mortally injured, and he dies cursing the general. Had he lived a while longer, he might have read the tape that spilled out of the wrecked machine. Question. Will the army that is attacking the city destroy us and you? Answer. Yes, but he will die in the attempt. The commander might have understood why the general had been able to anticipate his every move if he could have read the tape. Actually, he had found the general after all. A small metal plate lay on the floor beside him reading General Electric Digital Computer Model S4. And there we go. We have the general, but Rich has a little killjoy for this one. Yeah, just a tiny killjoy. What the hell kept that computer going since 2165? If nothing else, the paper reel should have run out well over a century ago. <laughs> yeah, and it was made by General Electric, so yeah, I really <laughs> don't know if it would have lasted after the first few years it was made, but okay. So <laughs> comments and commendations on this story. I'll just say I tried to inject some enthusiasm into that synopsis, but I was pretty much just biding my time until this one was over while I was reading it. This is workmanlike filler at best. It's even visually boring, despite the skilled drawing of Alcala. It's panel after panel of white guys with beards and shaggy hair and no shirts. These people can make swords, capes, loincloths, but... They forgot how to make shirts. The surprise at the end was equally dull. Again, even visually. Not much drama in watching a guy hacking away at a blinking meat locker. If I have to pick highlights, and I do, I like the design of the host on the first page, and I chuckled at the very bad joke behind the general's name. I guess they didn't worry about asking permission for stuff like that back in the day. Yeah, I didn't like this one too much either. Love Alcala's art, which goes without saying, but the story seemed to go on about a page or two too long for me. Bullock also did that for that horrible story, The Conquerors, from issue 16 that we ranted about. I like page five panels one and five, where the commander's brutality is laid bare, and the murdered prisoner hanging by his ankles from the tree, and the battle to enter the city begins. 
beginning is a bit unintentionally jarring, reading it almost 50 years after it was written, when the massive wall-sized mainframe computers with magnetic tape reels and paper readouts were still in vogue. But this is supposed to be a post-apocalyptic tale. Yeah, retrofuturism. That's like um, how on the original Star Trek, Spock station still has like the old-fashioned gas station digits revolving around, you know? <laughs> so that's like, a, you know, it looks like it's operated by a crank. So, you know, you run into these problems. But uh, to finish off the uh, the story content of the issue here, we, uh, we go, uh, I think maybe a little back on the upswing, but I'll let Rich tell you whether we do or not. The veteran four pages. Jack Olick goes three for three. Pencils by Paul Kirchner. Inks by Tex Blasdell. Blasdell? Synopsis. The year is 2060. The veteran commander of a space fighter squadron, Colonel Corbin, surprises his co-pilot, Chris, when he enters the fighter's cockpit. The flight surgeons had grounded the commander, calling him too old, but he convinced the doctors he could still pilot a spaceship. He'd led the squadron to so many previous victories that he had no choice but to relent. Five fighters take off vertically from a launch pad, heading for their target on the moon. 18 Gs, 30 miles a second. It was a perfect takeoff. But mentally, even the skipper has to admit these launches were getting more agonizing. But it's so beautiful up here. Three enemy fighters rise to intercept the flight, and Corbett orders two of his own fighters to engage while the rest of them attack the base. Leading the way, Corbin lines up his ship on target as Chris calls out the course. It was only a correction of a tenth of a degree to starboard, but Corbin doesn't compensate. He fires late and misses. Both of them are shocked. Corbin had never missed before. It had to be the computers. The two fighters following Corbin blast the base, and Corbin loops around to try again. This time he hands control of the craft to Chris and operates the computers instead. The doctors were right. At a certain age, you're just too old. On their next pass, with Chris at the controls, the base is finished off. As they return to Earth, Corbin tells Chris the squadron is his now. Chris protests that one miss doesn't mean anything. Corbin thanks him, but says they both know better. Sooner or later, someone will die because of him. As Corbin slowly walks back to his quarters after landing, he stares up at the stars that are forever lost to him. The veteran could be forgiven if a single tear trickled down his cheek, especially when he was barely 15. No killjoy, because it's a future story. So just dive right into the CNC. Ender's game, anyone? You can almost believe something to this is in our future with how tech-savvy kids are these days. The starships definitely have a Star Trek feel to them with their white holes, saucer sections, etc. The artists use shadows, silhouettes, and helmets to shield the age of the characters. I like page one, panel three of the ripple launch of the fighters, and page two, panel four, when the attack begins. I never read Ender's Game, but I know enough about it from you know hearing about it over the years to get the reference. As for this story, <laughs> it was a step up from the previous one, but pretty weak compared to the first. Everything from the dialogue to the art for me just felt kind of stiff. The narrative captions were better, but they also felt like they were trying really hard to inject some actual excitement into what we were seeing. The twist ending was telegraphed real hard in the very first panel, but I agree. The efforts to conceal it visually were very well done, especially since, I got to remind myself, the primary target audience here is kids, you know, so... 
yeah, I can't really say, oh, I saw that coming. Is there writing for nine to 11 year olds here? So, you know, good for me. <laughs> Art wise, I really like the shot of the launching area itself. It reminded me of an Infantino establishing shot as many things that I like tend to do. I, I really like that style. It's, I don't know if it's art deco or whatever it is. It's that sparse, crisp, again, retro-futuristic look, almost minimalist. I like it. So I also really like the close-up of our skeletal host on the final page. You know, our hosts don't get to wear spacesuits often enough, I say. So I like that too. It's all right. Not a bad final story in, in either opinion here, I don't think. So with that out of the way, we are going to move on to the APO Weird War Tales letters page. I'll kick it off with um, a letter from Jim Tom Mountain Sheep of Beatty, Nevada. Right away, the, the name right there is a winner. Uh, letter's nice and short and sweet. It says, Dear Joe, you asked for suggestions for weird war settings. How about this one? An Indian soldier who is guided by the spirit of one of his great ancestors. I enjoy weird war just as it is, but more historical war stories would be very interesting. Now, Joe responds and says, DC once did a series of adventures about an Indian pilot who was aided by the spirit of one of his ancestors, Johnny Cloud. So we'd have to come up with a new variation before we'd try it in Weird War Tales. But the idea of an Indian war story sounds intriguing. By the way, there's a Johnny Cloud reprint in the current June issue of Our Army at War. Now, I'm like, you own Johnny Cloud. Why not do a Weird War Tale story with Johnny Cloud in it? Bring him in. You know, I, I don't get why. Maybe there was, just, you know, editorial territories, you know, back then, just like there are often in comics where Johnny belonged to the real War Comics office. And so he couldn't be used in this horror anthology book. But I, I'd love to see a Johnny Cloud story in this book myself. So I, I just dug that for the name and the fact that it got me uh, thinking about Johnny Cloud, who was just cool. I don't know why they couldn't have. I mean, he talks to his spirit ancestors all the time. Yeah, so that, that's, you got your weird war tie-in right there. And heck, actually, you know, you're talking about the um, wanting to have a more historical war stories to be very interesting. Well, tune in, folks. You know, we have, a, we have an episode coming up. All three stories have a prolonged history minute attached to it. So it's coming. It's coming. Yeah, I like uh, I like episodes where I can uh, I can take a nice nap <laughs> while you do all the talking. <laughs> and then you got to edit me, Mario. So as I push up my glasses. <laughs> my letter comes from Chuck Williams of Brookline, Massachusetts. Dear Joe, Weird War Tales number twenty-two was a very nice issue. Just the new story by George Evans would have been enough to make it a good issue. But the addition of a day after Doomsday feature gone much too long from the pages of DC Mystery Line, and a fairly good, if cliche, job by Drake and Dezniga brought it way above par. The cover was dumb. Dominguez has done much better work for you in the past. The coloring was nice and bright, but it just couldn't hide the lack of imagination in the cover itself. You've done too many floating death's heads to make another one worthwhile. Wings of Death was one of the best stories you've ever featured in Weird War Tales. George Evans is, of course, one of the finest artists when it comes to drawing the military, and Jack Olick provided one of his best scripts, a tour de force from beginning to end. Your letters column, please make it a full page in the future. These cut-and-run columns are dull, touche. Brought up the point of settings for your stories. I really enjoyed the day-after-doomsday job and hope that many more short stories will be coming up. 
based in that same time period. Last rites for the living, as I said before, was cliche. The basket case who survives many years because of his evil machinations has been done many times before, although I will admit this was a nicely produced version. Still, Weird War is usually so novel and different that this story was quite a disappointment. And Joel responds, the letters page only becomes a half page when it becomes absolutely necessary, although it is very hard to find enough readers' letters to fill up full page features. Take a hint, readers. We want to hear from you. So that kind of makes it sound like that. Hey, we can only publish what we get. This is on you, right, people? So I liked, you know, I, I agree with, with a lot of what he's saying in here. I liked Weird War Tales 22. You know, I know uh, you had some issues with the, uh, vampire explosive bat thing going on in wings of death but uh, last rites for the living was was a pretty cool basket case and everything so oh yeah i, I loved last rites for the living and you know uh, yeah I, I bagged on the exploding bat story a bit mostly because it was visually kind of dull in my opinion i know the airplanes were drawn really well or whatever but that doesn't really turn my crank you know what i mean not like not like it does for some people but i'm just like this guy after doing this show for a while, and he's like, Weird War Tales is usually a lot more original. Half of them are Twilight Zone episodes. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, shows what you know, buddy. All right. So, Twilight Zone was on before his bedtime. He didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. More than likely. Again, I'm forgetting the target audience, maybe. But uh, either way, that was kind of a fun and engaging letters page. So let's see how we do with the spotlighted ads for this issue. Engrave up plates make excellent extra cash with no real selling. Just showing this sample, which we give you free. Take easy, fast orders for much wanted personalized metal social security plates. If you want to make good extra cash in spare time, we'll send you a complete compact money making order taking outfit, which includes an actual sample, engraved plate, carrying case, ID card, and 10 year calendar plus customer order forms, reply envelope, and everything else you need to start taking orders and making money from the very day you receive it. This complete outfit is yours absolutely free and entirely without obligation. Just show it to everyone. They'll be amazed and delighted by the low price, only $2 each, especially when they discover that they'll also get a smart carrying case, an ID card, and an exclusive 10-year calendar, all free. You make $1 profit on every order. <laughs> I'm sorry, can we just say identity theft people? I mean, maybe it just gets hammered into us these days and wasn't near as big a deal in 1974, but this just howls bad idea now. I mean, why do you need a metal social security plate? Why? <laughs> and put it on the back of your bicycle. <laughs> That thing was amazing. I, I was so glad you picked that out because I think I cruised right on past that ad reading it or reading the issue. And once you put that in the script and I went back, I'm like, this thing's insane. <laughs> so, I had to read it two or three times. Like, yeah, I think I got to go with this one. Absolutely great. And as for me, I'm, uh, I'm not going to cop out and pick a house ad here, even though the famous first edition special of Wonder Woman's debut in Sensation Comics is offered in this issue, and Golden Age Wonder Woman comics are a must-read. Seriously, they're insane, people. You do it. But no, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I will direct your attention to the ad for Superfly, the amazing new airplane kite 
as seen on TV. Superfly, patent pending, TM. Never before, such fantastic kite flying thrills. Built like an airplane, flies like a kite. Test proven for performance. You launch Superfly like a regular kite in five miles per hour or stronger winds. Does everything a kite can do, even banks and dives. The harder the wind blows, the higher the Superfly climbs. Strong winds do not increase the pull. Instead, because of Superfly's unique design, the wind slips off the wings faster and the kite plane rises higher. Superfly can actually fly directly over your head with the thread straight up from where you stand. Use any household thread as the common number 50 size or stronger. 100 feet of thread included. Order by mail. Cut coupon now. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, seriously, folks, just that this thing looks like it sucks. And the ad sucks, too. Why is there a patent pending notice? For what? A patented way to get kids to stop flying kites for good? I I'm sorry, but the non-house ads in these issues are starting to take a nosedive for me. A <laughs> I gotta say, kudos to Rich for having the patience to dig for one because Engrava Plates runs away with it. Superfly was just like, was outstanding to me for how lazy it was. The, the <laughs> ad is just really boring. The plane is like vaguely red, white, and blue. The logo is something I'm almost capable of drawing. It's just so half-hearted. The logo screams 1974. I mean... You know, it's just like the big, you know, soft curved black letters with the color split in half with a star in the middle between super and fly. And yeah, <laughs> it looks like the logo that would be on top of a page of ads for those unlicensed patches they would sell really <laughs> fast. You know, like that's that looks like someone drew it by hand and went quick. Let's sell these before the lawyers notice, you know, so just just uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you found the engraver plates. I, I'm hoping someone out there had some experience experience with those things because that's insane just it's i i don't i don't get it so we got the ads we got the letters page we've talked about the stories we're gonna move on to the section we like to call got any last words and my last words are the first story in this issue as you just heard me say is an absolute masterpiece in my opinion the second is pretty bad and the third rises to the moderately neato level at best, but has its charms. So that first tale pays for every other page and then some, though. So I got a I'm having a hard time really knocking this issue because I could read that first story three times and call it an issue. You know what I mean? That is that good. Hey, I got to agree. If you got to go with survival of the fittest for the best story, perhaps appropriately, the veteran was a pretty solid second place, though. Good addition to the title run. Keep them coming. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't throw this issue out just for, uh, you know, whatever flaws it might have. So our <laughs> assessment of the issue being complete, we're going to wander on over to the dead letter office where we take a look at social media interaction, some emails, stuff like that from, from uh, our good listeners out there in the podcast sphere. And this edition of the Dead Letter Office is focusing on episode 27 of the show, where we took a look at Weird War Tales number 24. But first, I'm going to remind you guys that for right now, there is still the Weird Warriors Podcast PX at redbubble.com, where you can go and order our awesome logo created and drawn by Bill Walco of the Hero Business. 
and put that logo on anything that they have over at Redbubble. You can put it on mugs. You can put it on a shirt. You can put it on a cat. No, you probably can't put it on a cat. They, they won't stand for that. It'd be fun but to watch that. It, 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 yeah, yeah. I wouldn't try to put it on any one of my cats because they know where I sleep. So <laughs> we got we got it there, people. Go and order some stuff. Or, or just Rich and I will keep ordering it. And you'll see us walking around cons looking like uh, floating parade floats for the Weird Warriors podcast. Okay, so over on Twitter, people stopped by to say hey. And those people were Jeremy Floyd, Agent Antihero, Radioactive Dinosaur, Alan Middleton, Professor Alan himself, The Telltale Mind, and a name right up my alley, Grumpy 2000. So, you know, there we go. <laughs> Kindred spirit. Over on Facebook, my old buddy Mark Orlman stopped by. Clinton Robison of Coffee and Comics. C. Michael Cartwright, longtime internet buddy of mine, avid role-playing gamer, and all-around cool dude. We got Herschel Mimis, Billy D. Daniel Rapoli, Tim DeForest, David Steele, and Peter Watson of the Earth 2 podcast also stopped by. And over on the episode's photo album, we got some additional visits here um, from Brian Matthews and Luke Ed. And on Rich's uh, remembrance post for Bob Conniger, Joe Phillips, Bill Mooney, Matt Caruso, Ken Boutillier. Just a bunch of people stopping by to say, hey, give us a like, give us a share, stuff like that. And we really appreciate it. Over on the Weird Warriors podcast at gmail.com address. Our longtime listener, Jason Zeller, founder of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award. He wrote in, he mentions the V for Vendetta movie instead of a Twilight Zone episode. At least V came out later than the issue of Weird War Tales. So, you know, for once, Weird War Tales didn't get caught copying something that came out before. <laughs> right? so, that's pretty good. Uh, you know, at least it looks like somebody lifted off of Weird War Tales instead. Now, with the dead letter office out of the way. Rich is going to let you all in on what's coming up in the future. <laughs> Weird War Tales number 28. A full-length battle tale. A half-page letters page. More bulk of beat-em-up ads than ever. And a protagonist that Max will loathe by panel nine of the story. Be here for all the mystery and madness. Hey, I hate him already. <laughs> So that's it for this time around, guys. This deployment is over. This has been the Weird Warriors podcast. We have been the Weird Warriors. We are the Batlin Bros. I am Max. He is Rich. And we promise to make war. No more. <laughs>